All righty. Well, uh, take your Bible, join me in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. And uh, while you're turning, so the wedding ring, let me just comment on that. I, uh, I was in one of those seasons of faithfulness to the gym, and uh, you know, you gold wedding bands, they get beat up on the bar. And so I would take my band off to preserve its beauty, and, and uh, somewhere along the line, I just misplaced it. And I don't know what the illustration was, but you know, periodically, I'll draw something out of the world I live in or am dealing with and bear witness to the fact that I didn't have my wedding band, and it was a thing. And I'd assured my wife that I was still committed, despite the the loss of the band. It is a token. It is a symbol meant to remind you and anybody else that I made promises, and I still intended to keep them. But there was a guy, they sat in the second row right in front of me. I don't know how he pulled this off, and I do not believe it was his wedding band, but I ended up with a wedding band at the end of that service. And then the following week, he brought me kind of a souped-up, engagement version of the wedding band so it had diamonds and it 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 was it was really not my style uh, but it was a statement and uh so i am happily married have been and now my band does not come off i I found it it's engraved so it meant a lot to me to have you know her initials saying this is to me my initials june 5 uh, 1982 so it's back it doesn't come off um Whatever beat up it is, it just is what it is. And when I finish, it's like a Bible. It should be beat up at the end because you're using it and you're doing life with it. So that's the wedding band, and thanks for the reminder. I had forgotten that journey. All right, so let me tell you why we're in uh, Mark's Gospel, Chapter 4. Because in a few weeks, the Master's University student population will return. And we've been working our way through James, and I did not want to finish chapter 5 without including them in the journey. So I'm going to delay a few weeks to get back into James 5. We're going to finish that book, Lord willing, with a flourish, and it's a great chapter. It's packed with relevant, as it has, really through the first four chapters of the lifestyle and convictions of a biblical Christian. You want to claim Christ, you want to say I have faith, this is how it lives and works itself out in real life. And so we'll be in chapter 5 in a few weeks uh, when I get back and the students get back. But I wanted to take some time today to calibrate your thinking, really kingdom clarity, the kingdom of God. And the the big idea is there, and and Pastor John has been working through a series, Heaven on Earth, and before that, True true Salvation, what are the characteristics of a true believer? And I, I wanted to take the time to spend a few weeks with what is one of the most important, if not the most important, illustration in the Bible because it deals with real salvation. It is a cornerstone revelation by way of an illustration to explain the potential responses to the word of God and the evidence that you know and have a relationship with God in the kingdom of God. So Mark chapter 4 is the beginning of a series of parables that are meant to help illustrate and communicate kingdom truth. 
And my hope today is that through this one, this is the foundational one. Matter of fact, in verse 13 of chapter 4, he's going to say, if you don't get this one, how can you understand any of the rest of the parables that describe the kingdom of God? This is foundational. This is essential. This is critical. And it's a calibrating assessment tool because there were a lot of followers. Jesus came in to... The world of men, he's now been presented to the community that he's doing ministry in. He's been, the way has been prepared. John the Baptist says, you know, this is, the, I'm the way maker, prepare the way for the king. Here comes the king, he's baptized, heaven affirms, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus has been saying things and doing things that validate his reality. And in chapter 4, he wants to speak to the potential responses to that declaration. The big story of the Bible, you know this, but I want to rehearse it. God made everything good, and he made it for his glory. In the beginning, God created, and it was a perfect world without sin, designed by God to be a blessing to those who he had made, the world that he had created, and glory for the one who created. The seventh day set apart to bear witness to the wonder of the one who created through the means that he had created, the results, that the product of what he had created. But then very early on, you know, you've, we're going to do walk through the Bible. I'm so glad for that, Hal. We had that at my church in Birmingham, Chip Ingram. Do you know that name? So Chip Ingram came down from where Tennessee or somewhere place like that, wherever he was, and he did that seminar, and, and it is wonderful. And uh, my wife didn't make me go, but I did go and uh, <laughs> learned a lot. So that, that'll be a great tool for you. But the big story of the Bible, God created man for his glory and created the world good. And then chapter 3, the fall of Adam. Man was damaged by evil because Satan was involved, the personification of evil, and by choice. Thus entered the curse. Things died. Dramatic, catastrophic change. But even in that early reality of the fall of Adam, there's the promise of the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, the proto Evangelium, the beginning of the hope of the gospel, restoration. The seed of the woman is going to restore and crush evil and repair what had been lost. Paradise lost. Promise of a paradise regained, a restoration. The big story of the Bible is God created man for good in his glory. Man was damaged by evil and by the fall. And God made a promise to rescue and restore through the seed of the woman, the son of God. And in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with the coming of the God-man, the son of God, the son of man, the son of David, the forecasted ancestor of Abraham, Jesus Christ, the rescuer, the king of everything, exchanging glory to come to earth in order to rescue and restore. 
and to reveal the character and nature of God. Demonstrating who God is and providing a solution that restores those who would believe through the grace and the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. He bore our sin on a cross, our sin, not his own sin, and he satisfied a debt we could not pay. Those three hours of darkness, all of it was hard, but when it went dark and he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? All justice for all time on, for all who would believe was poured out on one man, our substitute, the Lamb of God, the Rescuer, Jesus Christ. And when he said, it is finished, it is paid in full. So if you're here today and you've recognized you're a sinner and cannot save yourself, and you do recognize that God has provided a solution to satisfy a justice that hell does not satisfy. Nobody gets out of hell. It's eternal punishment. Because it can't secure justice. No amount of suffering and justice can fulfill what Jesus alone can. If you're the person who recognizes, I can't save myself, and you place your faith and trust in the one who can satisfy justice, who has satisfied justice, who lived a perfect life which you did not live and gives as a gift of grace his righteousness for your unrighteousness and you receive by faith, not your works, desperately saying, God, I repent, I cannot save myself. I receive by grace the gift of your righteousness. I believe and I receive a life I cannot produce on my own. And it's eternal life. It starts that day and in that moment, and it extends into eternity. You have a taste of it today. The fulfillment is coming when he returns, and we enjoy the glory that he has prepared. If you're that person who's received that, you are restored to God. You're reconciled to God. And here's the big fourth act. And you've been commissioned by God as an agent of rescue, an ambassador to seek and to save. Because there are other people who need what you have, and how can they receive it unless they hear it? And how can they hear it without somebody to share it? Jesus comes into the world. Look at Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning the beginning, rather, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is the good news, forecasted, promised, illustrated through the nation of Israel and all that sacrificial system, all of the prophetic voices that united to say a rescuer is coming, a king is coming, a substitute, a suffering servant is coming. He's going to fix it. Israel had that hope. They just didn't understand the depth of that redemption, not just deliverance from despots who, tyrants who ruled from Rome, but the change of the heart from the inside out that would display the kingdom of God in people, ultimately to be realized through the coming of Jesus and the 
son of David on his throne, ruling righteously in a whole new world. That's coming. That's our hope. So you're looking at all of the catastrophic challenges of our culture. If you're a Christian, this is a season, but we are headed for a time and a place where all will be corrected. Can you say amen to that? Are you glad for that? That's a guarantee. That's why at the end of the Bible, even so, come quickly. But there are people to be saved. All of prophecy that I'm aware of has been satisfied except the last person hearing the good news and the last person being saved. Then will come the consummation of the ages, Jesus Christ. So people are hearing that. The Son of God is coming proclaiming that. He says in verse 15, the time is fulfilled, chapter 1. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's not at hand like some future thing. It's here right now. It's it's here in me. It's validated in my person. I'm here. The rescuer has come. And the beginning of the restoration is happening. And now notice what he says in verse 15. Repent and believe in the gospel, which we just rehearsed. Repent, turn around, change your mind. You can't fix it through the religious system. You can't live your life for yourself. Repent, change your mind, change your direction. There is no salvation without repentance. Repentance is not your work. It is a grace work of God. The sorrow of God produces repentance without regret. You can't make yourself sorry enough to repent. You can be sorry over your life. You can be miserable over the realities of the way you feel and what you do. But biblical repentance is the product of the sorrow of God. It's the work of His grace that produces a repentance without regret. The sorrow of the world produces death. You can pull the trigger. You can take the overdose. You can do the escape but it will not satisfy the sorrow that produces a change of heart, which is, I'm broken. Listen, if you're sad enough to say you're sorry and you're convicted and convinced, and it's not going to be the kind of thing where I want to escape, I want to die, I'm not worth anything, true salvation is the result of the sorrow that says, I need to change, and I believe God can change me. And I'm sorry for who I am. But that sorrow isn't going to kill me. It's going to draw me desperately to the life that is life. Repent and believe. Rely on. Not just give mental assent to the fact that, oh, Jesus, yeah, he's the son of God. No, I'm relying on him as the son of God and as the substitute for my salvation. I am confessing with my mouth I am believing in my heart that he is who he says he is, did what he said he would do, and I'm trusting him and only him. Not as the Catholic Church would teach, Jesus Christ plus church plus the righteousness that I do that helps bear witness and validate and secure my righteousness. If you're a Christian, you're righteous because it's a gift. And you can't become more righteous in terms of your standing. You're secure because it's a righteousness not your own. Theologians call it an alien righteousness, meaning it's not yours. You got it from someone outside of you. 
the righteousness of Christ you receive like a gift. You're saying, you're, you, and I, I imagine some of you are going, Harry, it's Grace Community Church. I got this. Everybody doesn't have this. And you can claim this and not have this. There were followers of Jesus, a lot of them. That's how chapter 4 begins. Chapter 4, he began to teach again by the sea, verse 1. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. Did you see the very large crowd? Literally, it's many, many, many. And I want to punctuate, so I'm going to read a verse out of Matthew's gospel, parallel passage, and I want you to kind of feel the passion of the crowd. There's so many, he's got to get in a boat lest they would crush up against him. But listen to Matthew 13, verse 2, parallel passage. And large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down. Remember, sitting down for a rabbi was a sign and signal of authority. I'm about to teach the truth. But listen to this. And the whole crowd was standing on the beach. I, I circled in Matthew's gospel, standing. This teacher, his works, his words, my need was so compelling, I'm willing to stand. They didn't sit, they stood. So crowded and compacted, you know, it's like the concerts you go to where you really want to hear and see and, or the big game and people stand up and if you want to see any of the action, you have to stand up. That's what it was. Not just standing room only. It was everybody compelled to stand because of what they were hearing. That's the pathos of this passage. A bunch of people following Jesus. And he was teaching them, verse 2, many things in parables. And was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this. Now, a word about parables. Parable is para, para. alongside, like parallel lines, side by side, bola, to throw something alongside. It means to illustrate by comparison, bringing something alongside to compare. Compare with what? My kingdom. I'm the king. This is my kingdom. This is how my kingdom works. And I'm going to give you illustrations, parables, points of comparison. A story told by Jesus to illustrate a truth, a teaching, and a comparing of something known, the nature of what he's going to talk about, to something not known, the kingdom of God. This is earthly story to give heavenly perspective. This is earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now, it is true that if there are hard-hearted people in the crowd, the parables were given to them as a way of hiding the truth. But if you were a follower and true disciple, it was a way of helping you understand the truth. There were two sides of parables, the side of judgment and the side of illumination and understanding and advancement. 
So he's going to tell this parable, and I want you to look at verse 3. Listen to this. Do you see that? It's italicized because the, the grammar the to this has to do with what he's about to say. Listen is the big idea. Pay attention to this. Be like, listen to me. See that? Everybody's head went up. Some of you were down. You, you had your head up. That's Jesus. Listen to this. And then I referenced it earlier, verse 13, where he's going to explain this. He's asked to explain this first parable. Listen to verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable, the one he's about to tell and we're going to look at? How will you understand all the parables? If you don't get this one, you're not going to get any of them. That's why you need to listen to this. You need to understand it, which is why he says in verse 9, when he finished telling this first one, and he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Putting it in our language, hey, you got to get this. If you don't get this, you're not going to get anything. Everything else I'm about to illustrate is going to be dark to you. This is foundational. This is essential. These are things you must know. And I want you to know these things. And here's the big idea, and we're going to read the passage, but here is what Jesus is about to say. This is how people will respond to me. This is how people are going to respond to me. This is how some of you are responding to me. And this is why you're responding to me this way. Because there's a variety of responses. Many will hear, but few will truly believe. Some will make claims, but they will not last. They're not legitimate. And of those who truly believe, there will be, listen, there will be and must be growth. Amazing, exponential growth. All right, let's read the story. Then we'll unpack it, and we're going to spend a couple of weeks here, so not to worry. Verse 3, listen to this. Behold, here's the first story, the parable. Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road. And the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And as soon as he was alone... His disciples, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him. By the word follower is someone who considers themselves a disciple attaching to a teacher. They want to learn. And then there's the twelve, the official disciples. They began asking him about the parables. This is where he gives illumination that one side of the parables is to lock people into their status of unbelief. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. So it's not obvious. It's not that you can't know it, but it's a mystery. I'm about to unveil it. But those who are outside, those who are not in the kingdom, who don't enjoy the spirit of God and the life of God, get everything in parables 
so that while seeing they may not perceive and while hearing they may not hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven, which is an interesting statement, and we'll come back to it. Verse 13, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? You don't get this one, you're not going to get it. So I'm going to explain this one. You need to get it. The sower sows the word. All right, so the first general idea that Jesus wants to communicate is the seed sown is the word of God. It is the sower, which is a reference to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming into the world with the gospel of God. And he's sowing seed, and that seed consists of the word of God. So Jesus Christ is the sower, and obviously the sowing continues. Even today, it'll happen at our church. Agents of God will disseminate the truth of God, the word of God, which transforms people for the glory of God, rescues them. Uh, 1 Peter says that we are saved, born again. This is 1 Peter 1.23. We are born again by the imperishable seed of the word of God. So the sower is Jesus Christ, the gospel rescue bringer, and any truth teller who bears witness to that seed who preaches the word of God. Matthew 13, 37 says the sower is the son of man. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, Jesus, and anyone he commissions to bring the truth. The seed has to do with God's word, the word of God, Luke 8, 11, and notice here it says it is the word. So the seed is the word, the truth of the gospel. Just a uh, comment, first of all, about this. I want you to understand, because I think it's relevant, by way of general observation, the sower sows seed on all kinds of ground. It is not targeted seed. It is lavish, generous, and proactive. The sower sows the seed. The par- first parable, the way he said it and when, he, when he stated initially before he explained it, the sower went out to sow. There's this proactive sowing by the Son of God lavishly. It is not targeted. He spread it everywhere on good and bad soil. I think one of the things you need to recognize and and faithful representation of the heart of God is proactively spreading the good news, not concerned so much about whether you think the soil is ready. You just share it. He did it. We should do it. The second thing I would say about the seed is the seed was the same. The message was the same. It did not morph from audience to audience. The truth was the issue, or the truth was not the issue, rather. The soil was. The modern church is often tempted, I think, to adapt the message. We are sometimes tempted to adapt the message to make it more palatable, more attractive. That's why we don't talk much about eternal judgment It's not attractive. It just happens to be essential. Tell the truth. Tell the whole truth. Don't modify the truth. The soil determines what happens. 
The message needs to be the same. It is the quality of the heart soil of the hearer that determines the result of the sowing. It is not the truth of God or the gospel and its presentation that defines its outcome. The heart does that receives it. Let's continue reading Mark 4, verse 15. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. So category number one, one of the four potential responses to the word of God is revealed in this beside the road soil. And I want to ask you to take an honest look at your heart. Just hold it up and say, what is revealed about my heart and the characteristics that display or communicate it? So if you're taking notes, I would write that down. That was a very significant statement. The lights changed. (laughs) I want you to ask yourself, what kind of heart do you have? What kind of heart do I have? Based on the possibilities. Do I have a beside-the-way heart? Beside-the-road heart? And and then one other thing I want to add by way of application and exhortation. I want you to ask that question, and then today I want you to ask somebody else that question about you. Because one of the gifts you can't give yourself is perspective. And what happens is we tend to think one thing when actually somebody else can think another thing by observing our life. I wasn't a big fan, but I did early on watch American Idol. It was kind of a thing. Many, too, probably too many seasons, but I remember one particular program. I actually don't remember when, but I remember what happened. One of the can- American Idol was where you display your talent, and these judges uh, support you or don't support you, and you have opportunities to move on and become America's Idol, which is an interesting title. But this one guy sang, and Simon Cowell, who was one of the judges known for his blunt and objective assessment, says to the guy who sang when he was finished, he was the first one who said, that was terrible. And then he added, that was horrible. (laughs) Now, it was was rough, right? Here's a guy just put himself out there, and he was assessed and judged as terrible and horrible. And he was taken aback, and I think everybody was taken aback by the blunt kind of evaluation assessment. And then the guy said this, Oh, no, no. Cal said this. Who told you you could sing? I can sing? Who told you? Give me a name. And and I remember the flavor of that because honestly, you could tell by the young man's expression, he thought he could sing. Some of you say, I'm a Christian. Who told you? So part of the evaluation is an objective reflection. What do you see in me? 
If you're going to take Harry Walls and put him in these categories, which category are you going to put him in? What do you see in me? Because three of these categories are inadequate. There's only one saving category of real faith and real kingdom connection, and it's the fourth one. But there are three other possible responses. And the first one we see in verse 15, it's Jesus said, these are the ones who are beside the road. Listen to what a historian said about beside the road. This was hard ground on the side of the road. The fields in Palestine were in the form of long, narrow strips. This is a historian talking about the benefit of the way it was for those of us who weren't there. The fields in Palestine were in the form of long, narrow strips. These strips were divided by little grass paths, which were rights of way. The result was that they became beaten as hard as stone by the feet of those who used them. As the sower scattered his seed, some might well fall there, where it could not grow because the ground was rock hard. It was impenetrable. It was hard. So the first heart that Jesus says, the first kind of person and the response of that person is described here as the soil of the hard-packed heart. Impenetrable. So hard that no seed penetrates it. The word of truth, the seed of the gospel is spoken, it's sown, it's spread, and its potential is lost. It's lost because it can't get in the soil, and it's lost because the enemy, Satan, steals that seed. It can't get into the heart. No growth is possible because no seed enters in. No harvest of the fruits of the gospel are possible. We're going to talk about the fruits of the gospel, but just rehearse with me. No forgiveness. I mean, Jesus has been doing all these amazing things. Forgiving healing, restoring, you know, the leper restored, the demonized man liberated, the mother-in-law raised up, the paralytic, take up your bed and walk, your sins are forgiven you, the withered hand, you hold it out, I'll restore it. The rehearsing of all of these healings named some of them, many not named, but endless revelations of what the gospel fruit can produce, the kingdom life. We're going to focus at our university this year. Our chapel theme is life, L-I-F-E, big capital letters, a reference to the life of God. I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, Jesus said. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, take hold of that which is life and which is life indeed. It's not just living, breathing in in our culture or world life. It is supernatural, eternal life. Eternal life is not just a length of life. It is a quality of life. It is the life of God in you. And when the life of God in you is expressed, it involves relief of guilt, forgiveness, liberating. That's what our sub-themes are. Freeing transforming, and satisfying. If you taste the life of God, if you receive the seed, if it gets into your life, 
It's mammothly transformational. You're not the same. Old things pass away. Everything becomes new. I have new hope. I have new potential. I have new attitudes. I have abundance, joy, love, peace, hope. The fruit of God. You know what that's produced by? The seed of God. And that seed can't get in. And the enemy snatches its potential. So the first potential reaction, we're going to see some responses, but the first potential reaction to the truth of Jesus Christ, hear it, is no response. You hear it? You hear it as plain as it can be told. Hopefully I just told it plainly. The gospel gets preached. The word of God will get revealed. And there's a certain kind of person, Jesus says, who isn't going to get it. There's no response, no fruit, no life change. They sat in the chair beside you. They grew up in the home that you grew up in. They went to the same Christian camps. They heard the same good news, and nothing happens. Why does nothing happen? Is it because of the environment? Is it because of the message? Jesus said, no, it's because of their heart. It's the soil. It's hard. It's not receptive. It doesn't respond. You can say it, but there's no response. And the supernatural capacity of the seed does not affect its potential because it requires a receptive soil heart. These hearts are too hard to receive the seed, and therefore they don't realize any of its potential. I'm going to offer in the little bit of time we have today, and we may need to continue this particular point, but I want to give you some potential kinds of hard hearts. The ingredients, four potential reasons why hearts are hard. Why is it hard? I think option number one is indifference. Maybe it's because of the hardness of indifference. I'll give you all four, and then I'll try to unpack them. Indifference ignorance, grievance, and bad influence. I'm going to give you four biblical and practical reasons why somebody's heart is hard. Indifference, ignorance, grievance, which is my word for injury, and bad influence. Indifference. Maybe it's because of the hardness of indifference, and I'd call this hard heart the disconnected heart. These are the people that are not aware of the unmet and deepest needs of their own heart. They're just disconnected. These are the people that are not aware. They're satisfied with the world's thirst quenchers, temporal pleasures, achievements, accomplishments, relationships, and possessions. Their appetites for richer things are muted by life Twinkies. In other words, I don't need God. I got a business, I got a boat, I got a family, I get to travel. Hey, that's good for you. I just don't need it. Their appetites for richer things are muted by life Twinkies that never really nourish and are temporary diversions from the awareness of what they really need. Maybe I could say it this way. They hear the words, but they don't need them. 
I'm trying to memorize and work my way through the Sermon on the Mount again. It's been a while. And I just that first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Somebody who's so aware of their inward poverty. Not that I'm living in a tent and I don't know how I'm going to make it through the day. But my soul is so impoverished. I know I need what I don't have. For theirs is the kingdom of God. They get to taste it because they're desperate for it. This is the person who's desperate for nothing. They're disconnected from their heart's true condition. They've become hardened in their complacency. In a way, they've settled and their heart is hardened by the drumbeat of the culture and by lesser things. Turn over to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. Another parable that kind of fleshes this out. I don't know of maybe a more relevant section of Scripture to consider that reveals the common condition of the culture you're in. I don't need what you have. I'm perfectly fine, thank you. If that works for you, that's great. I've got other things to attend to. Here's a parable, another one of those stories thrown alongside to kind of talk about the kingdom of God and how people respond to it. It's a different one. It's called the parable of the dinner. Verse 16, Luke 14 Jesus said to him, a man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike, watch verse 18, began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. And I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. 21, and the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, You go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Let me tell you why I said that, because those are the people who need the opportunity to eat a meal like that. They're not making excuses because they have distractions. Well, I got a new tractor. I got to go try it out. I bought a new piece of land as if the land's not going to be there tomorrow. Oh, I just got married. Anybody know how long marriages last? They're supposed to last until death do us part. Come to the dinner because no relationship No economic, financial thing, no improvement, no convenience, no present interest, duty, or affection should compete with this opportunity. You bring in the people who know. They're hungry. They're needy. You you bring them in. You fill up the room. And you tell them, man, this is what you need. Come take advantage of it. Ignorance is a means, or excuse me, indifference is a means to hardness. All right. We're going to do ignorance next Sunday. All right, so we got a ways to go. Let me, let me kind of bring this all together this way since 
We didn't finish the hard-heartedness. You do what you're able to do by the Spirit of God, which is let the Word of God speak His truth into your life. The beauty of the Bible is you have a teacher, and it's not just Harry or John MacArthur, whoever stands up in front of you and opens it. You have the Spirit of God, the anointing, which teaches you the truth that God gives to you in the Bible. The Bible is the revelation of reality, and if you're a Christian, you have an internal teacher, and if you're not a Christian, you have an external to you but active convictor, the Spirit of God. So the assignment would be, you read this, ask yourself the question, where do I see myself? And then ask someone who knows you, where do you see me? Three of these soils will not get you home. Three of these soils are not a part of the kingdom of God. What do you believe about you? And what do others see in you? I'm a Christian. Who told you? Father, thank you for the opportunity to open the word of God today, to be back together This is such a critical category of consideration and self-evaluation. Am I or aren't I? I'm a claimer. I'm in the big crowd. But do I have a life that validates the reality of what I claim? And Lord, you said for our benefit, there are four kinds of people. And one of those people is the hard-hearted who don't need it. They don't get it, and they don't want it. Lord, help us to be aware to the end that we're benefited and blessed, and we're benefiting and are a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you. Have a good Sunday.